I deleted my uh, introduction. What'd you do that for? I don't know why I did that. <coughs> Recorded live. Scoob Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 235 is recorded live March 26, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the west side of the great state of Michigan where it is time to get some diving in. We're past show season. And I don't think there's any other word you can have for it. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and a little warmer than we were last week. Yeah, it's, a, it's edging up a little bit. And we also have joining us Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm just great, thank you. And uh, it is, I, I can't call it beautiful weather, but any time it breaks freezing, I guess my that's going to be my standard at this point. We well, we had rain this morning. Was that this morning we had a little rain? Or was that yesterday? It's It kind of blurs together now. No, it this morning. Yeah, it was this Ground morning. Ground was wet this morning, yeah. yeah and, then, and then was it yesterday, the day before, we had snow come down on us, two inches? Monday was snow day. Yeah, I, I drove into work and we didn't have snow, but then when I, I was going to go out for lunch and I saw the snow turned around and went back in. Wasn't going to deal with it, but that rain took care of it pretty quickly. So you've only got the little piles of snow that are hidden underneath the trees or the dark corners of your yard. Almost sounds like a, a monster, doesn't it, when you say it that way? It is a monster. And so let's go ahead. We got a few articles this week, so we'll jump right on into the news. And I didn't realize how much of an insult this is, but apparently it's got the Japanese a little worked up. Uh, on a Japanese warship, Divers are surprised to find a Chinese flag being flown. Last weekend, Japanese divers off the coast of Palau, Palau, I think it's pronounced Palau, thought they knew what they were going to see when they went to the underwater grave of the Japanese warship. However, they're surprised to discover something new in particular on the site, a Chinese flag. Former Japanese Imperial Navy tanker Eero was used before and through the Second World War until it was sunk by Americans on March 30th. 1944, the wreckage now is 8 kilometers or 5 miles southwest of Koror Island in Palau. It's at depths between 26 and 40 meters, which is about 85 to 130 feet. Become a popular destination for scuba dive trips. Only days away from the 71st, 71st anniversary of its demise, a Japanese imperial family had plans to visit Palau to pay respects to the many men who had lost their lives in battle. Anticipating the interest trip, Japanese news teams made investigation dive to the site on the 21st. Uh, the meter-long flag was attached to the coral-covered gun platform, remains a stern, which is held in place with wire and zip ties. Sampler flag was probably not easy, but so far no one has taken credit or blame. Uh, considering the symbolism, though, there's a high probability it was placed by Chinese divers, a theory further supported by the fact that Palau has become a popular tourist destination for Chinese citizens. So is that considered to be an insult? Well, they're taking it as that, but it's like now if you go down and you find these lost wrecks in Lake Michigan, 
and they find that little Kilroy, you know, sign on them that yeah. says Mud Club is here. Now, is that an insult or what? I don't think so. I, I don't either, so. But uh, I, I know that the it's a little tense between the Japanese and Chinese. Now, Palau, what what nation is that on right now? Let's see. I need to we'll consult the Great Book of Knowledge and see where Palau is. Palau, officially the Republic of Palau, is an island country located in the western Pacific Ocean, geographically part of a larger group of islands in Micronesia. Its currency is the U.S. dollar. President's first name is Tommy. Population is, is only 20,000. It's really like a city. Well, it sounds like it's its own entity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'll put I, it up there with mooning somebody. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say it's about the severity of the crime? Yeah, but setting up the flag was probably not easy. So I don't know why it wouldn't be easy to do that with tie wraps. It's like, duh. Well, it's written by people who weren't. Divers? Yeah, they weren't <laughs> divers. I, I think if you can't zip tie a, a flag, then you're you're probably either very new or you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, looking, I, looked at, I looked at the uh, end of it there, and it looks pretty easy. And what is it? No more than 130 feet down, so they have plenty of time. Oh, yeah. that, that The deepest is 130 feet. It's east off the Philippines, uh, north off New Guinea. It's about southwest of Guam. Yeah, it's it's really a ways away. It's uh, hmm. yeah, but I, I mean, isn't it one of those things that they is uh, you know, when you got a bunch of little kids and they're they're sitting there fighting and yeah, you know, you're like just just ignore them because the only reason that flag got put down there is because they knew they're going to get somebody's going to make somebody mad. If you kind of went didn't care. Well, I, is that sort of like us sticking a flag on the moon saying it's you know, was that we were here or at our moon? Yeah. Well, the difference is that we didn't stick it on, you know, it wasn't a Russian spaceship that we, we wouldn't stuck the flag in either. Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I think, it, and then it also comes into, is it a slow news week? I mean, how, do you, <laughs> how do you know the Chinese put it down there? You know, just conveniently. I mean, if you've, if you've got a, a, a crew of news people, it's like, hey, you want, you want to see somebody really get worked up? Here, take this flag well, with you. Who's complaining? The Japanese or the Flowens? The Japanese are. It's the Japanese who are worked up over it. So they About were... a Chinese flag on a Japanese wreck in Palau. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 It may, it may be an agenda. So if, if I put an American flag on a German U-boat, somebody would probably get upset in Germany? I doubt it. <laughs> I, I mean, I... Moving I mean, on. Yeah, some, somebody's going to get upset about anything. <coughs> a long-delayed Morgan Bay aquaculture decision is, has been announced. I've been following this one for a little bit. And uh, what is going up, and this is off the coast of Maine, uh, uh, shellfish farmer Joe Pod, what was it? P-O-R-A-D-A, Porida. He's been trying to get an experimental agricultural lease to see if oysters and quahogs will grow in Morgan Bay. Last Friday, the Department of Marine Resources issued a proposed decision approving the application of the four-acre experimental selfish lease, lease on the site near the upper end of Morgan Bay. The term of the lease would be there for three years. Uh, to date, the application process has continued for just over four years. So he's been working four years on trying to get this permit. The proposed decision is still subject to revision after DMR reviews, responses, exceptions, and requests to correct misstatements of fact. So what this is, is that anything they've got in their document that others come forward and say they can prove that those facts were incorrect, then they have time. 
Uh, and if you backtrack, what got them to finally make a decision is in January, after waiting, he, he's finally said, okay, I've had it. He called up the department and said, if you don't tell me, I'm going to take you to court. And then a little while later, they got back and they said, oh, we were planning on telling you before April. But he wanted to have time to make plans. Normally how this goes is you have three months, not three months, three years as an experimental. And then if that works out, uh, frequently it turns into a larger lease of 100 acres. But he's run into quite a bit of local opposition to the plan. Uh, and they're doing just about everything they can to keep him from doing it. You've got other people who have uh, tried to encroach on the territory that he's attempting to lease by saying that they want to build docks out into the area. Uh, it, it's kind of been a mess up there. Uh, scuba divers had completed a survey last year, which is used as information to go ahead and make the decision. That's how we found out about it. But what it will be doing is they'll be harvesting. He's going to use cages. Uh, I think it was cages, ba plastic bags, and uh, bags to hold the, the mussels. And then they're going to see if it's feasible. They're limiting him to being able, he can only use small boats. He can't use any noisy mechanical means for harvesting. And he has to remove the his uh, any apparatus he puts down between uh, by the end of the season. And then he can put it in at the beginning of the next year. So he's going to have a three-year lease. And then the little footnote is that the reason it took him so long is because is they're just so over understaffed and have too many requests that they had to process. It's she, interesting that I was trying to figure out why are they against it. Uh, it was talking about the uh, opponents testified the operation would interfere with their ability to swim or boat from their shorefront and would destroy the tranquility of Upper Morgan Bay. They also said the proposed operations were inappropriate for Morgan Bay and that shellfish aquaculture would provide a net benefit and include, improve water clarity. So the hearings have got two dozen witnesses, 75 exhibits, and it's like he said, she said. Yeah, it's it, it, what everybody has an opinion before they know anything. And you've got one group who doesn't want it for any reason. And then you've got the other group who's going to make monetary benefit from it. And I'm looking at a map of the area. It's kind of hard to get an idea of scale here. If I zoom in a little bit. I mean, it's a pretty big bay. Well, the last statement I thought pretty much said it. It says, almost lost in the procedural quagmire and anger of nearby landowners are DMR findings that the proposed shellfish farm won't unreasonably interfere with the protected interest of landowners meets legal requirements and that subject to a few minimal restrictions and experimental lease should be granted. Yeah, but did you see the other part in there where they were trying to say that the landowner had personal contacts with the uh, the DNR and the research people? Well, it's like they say, it's not <laughs> what you do, it's who you know. Yeah. Well, my thought is if you've been working on it for four years, eventually you're going to get to know somebody. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It is uh, some utilization of the resources. I, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Uh, you know, if it gets abused or becomes a problem, then you, you revoke it and he doesn't get to do it again, but... If you look at other areas who have similar activities, I don't think, believe they have a problem with it. But we're, you also remember that a lot of this has become resort area, and they don't like anything. You know, like they, they cry that we don't have enough green energy, and then you go and try and put a windmill somewhere, and it's like, oh, it's going to block my view. Yeah, there was an article in the newspaper for the same areas talking about harvesting scallops, 
and uh, there was a new procedure they were using for it. You know, they're actually grow, growing them or bedding them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the key item is I didn't realize that scallops were running, true scallops, $13, $14 a pound before they're processed. Wow. So that's if that's lot. true, how much is it going to cost you for scallops? It's going to be $20, $30, I would say. I mean, at least double it. You would think so. Yeah, I'll just eat shark plugs and pretend they're scallops. <laughs> that's what we do anyway, whitefish. Mm-hmm. And my cultured tongue duh, doesn't know the difference anyway. Yeah. yeah, us us inlanders. Hey, it still tastes good when you soak it in butter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it don't if it don't make me sick, it was good. Yeah, that's right. And this next article, I know almost nobody who's referenced in it, but supposedly they're famous. HBO's Entourage star is diving with sharks in Costa Rica. Adrian uh, Grenier, the star of the hit series Entourage, is soon to be released in a feature film, conveniently for PR, uh, arrived in Costa Rica this past Sunday for the purpose of swimming with the sharks. This was learned from his social media posts that the famous actor, producer, musician uh, is diving off the Isle del Coco. Is that Coco? With a group of biologists. Who, who puts the website font color gray on white? Someone who doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. It, it must be this website because they the article to the right. Well, they don't want you to read this article. They want you to read the article with all the girls in the bikinis. Well, that's the one I'm reading. <laughs> I just learned that Costa Rica is a top 10 spring break vacation destination. Sure. People who have and I can see why. Well, you're talking about, no, I like the article. Nothing against your article. But the photography, meaning the pictures to the right-hand side, yeah. are really, really nice. That's what you're talking about, Jim? Yeah. Well, but, but okay, here, okay. Forget the article. Let's look at the other side. Okay, well, look at the other picture. Look at the photo credit for that photo. Yeah, that's a little tight. Wikimedia. T- t- yeah, Wikimedia. What that means is that they took it from the wiki and that those pictures have nothing at all to do with the article or anything else other than that they're college-age girls. And attractive. Yeah. And skimpily clad. But it probably and, got at least us five to, to click on the photo. Hell sure. yes. You know, it made me read the spring break article, or at least yes. part of it. Yeah. And you don't need butter for this. Well, they're, they're, well, well they're wearing plenty of butter right now. You could probably well, I was dip your say, pod a little, right little, there. A little cocoa butter. A little cocoa butter, yeah. Okay, so let's look at, so let, so we've, we've gone from that other guy we had no idea who he is to these pretty girls. And let's say the 10 destinations for spring break. So I, I need to know these so I can tell my daughter no in advance. Uh, Dominican Republic, Bahamas, Costa Rica, Canada, Jamaica, Aruba, Netherlands, uh, El- Antilles, Turks, and Caicos. Along with Mexico, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale. Oh, yeah. because it would happen to Lauderdale, you know. Uh, well, that that's a uh, domestic yeah. destination. These were international Panama's, destinations. You mean for people who don't have money? Yeah, and New York. Can you, yeah, I want to go to New York for spring break. Yeah, if you if you don't have a passport, why would you go to New York? I don't picture New York being a spring break hotspot. No, absolutely not. But I think if you're a college student, getting out of town, not with your parents, in a place where there's parties, is spring break. It's just that I don't think in New York you may not be dressing in these bikinis at least outside. Not around here. I, I'm just curious. Have you ever heard about this guy or hit series entourage? I no, never I If everything's a hit series, you know, I'm, I I think know. that I think hit series now is not the hit series it was 20 years ago. To me, a hit, hit series is everybody knows about it. 
and more than half the U.S. adult population has watched it. There you go. That's my but, idea. But now with media and you got so many sources, a hit is anything that's got 5%. And then kind of back to the uh, diving for mussels, a local dive school is preparing, was it HADA? H-A-I-D-A divers for geoduck prosperity. Six citizens of the Haida Nation are hitting the water running with commercial fisheries in their traditional territory after successfully obtaining commercial scuba-restricted surface supply certifications from Campbell River. Graduates, graduates of the Dive Safe International Commercial Diving Course, the six members of the Masset Band are already finding employment in Vancouver Island's burgeoning aquaculture industry. They're also hopeful that someday soon they'll be able to use newly learned skills to harvest geoducks from the water surrounding Head Eyes Gwai. So I'm guessing this must be Canadian? Yeah, British Columbia. Yeah. So this must be uh, some tribal lands, and they're and at least they're doing it smart. You know, we had that article a couple of weeks ago about those uh, areas where they've actually banned uh, lobsters coming from them because all the, the divers were dying uh, or, uh, or being crippled from the bends. So here they're getting training to learn how to do commercial diving. I like the hat of the diver in the photo. That's an interesting-looking critter. Did they say what that is? And they're finding it in a river. We don't have them in our rivers. I wonder if this is more or, of a brackish water river. Yeah. You know how I keep saying about the codification of the uh, scuba laws, like Patty Nowry and all of those go into the government run? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. This is a good example of that Diver Certification Board of Canada. This is what we're going to wind up with. I'm looking at their certification. Starts out with restricted scuba diver, unrestricted scuba diver, scuba supervisor, restricted surface air supplied diver, unrestricted surface supplied diver, surface supplied mixed gas diver, blah, 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 blah. It's yeah. quite interesting. Well, that's for commercial, isn't it? No, no, no. Scuba diver. That is not commercial. Uh, oh, I thought- restricted is to a depth of 20 to 30 feet, depending on the, or meters. That's meters, actually. Holders of this certificate work in the seafood harvesting, aquaculture, underwater engineering inspection, archaeology inspection, police operations, underwater film production, and emergency services rescue response. Okay, so that's commercial. It doesn't sound commercial. Well, even though it does say that. Everything you mentioned was was business related or was a commercial entity. Yeah, that's what they're saying here. Certificates yeah. to the commercial diving personnel for companies described in CSA standards, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think probably the line, and, and I'm completely guessing, is that if you're going to somehow make money, either you're paid to dive or the results of your labors of diving uh, create money, then you probably have to follow these guidelines. And I'm, I'm looking, and you, you get it on the commercialdivinginstitute.com website which is Commercial Diving Institute of Canada. And I've, I've read some articles on them. They have some good uh, training material available on this. Occasionally I'll, I'll get links to it. But I'm not surprised. Canada seems to go that, that direction quicker than we do in the U.S. I know if you're a U.S. diver and you're going to Canada and somebody offers you a dollar to get their keys from their water, you don't do it. Yeah, I think we heard about that one before. Yeah, yeah. They'll confiscate all their gear. They'll fine you and kick you out of the country. You have to have a well. I would call the equivalent of a green card. Uh, we'll invade Canada, take them over, make them another state, and we don't have that. Yeah, I've thought that a long time. Yeah, we just need to take them. Either that or make them a prison colony. <laughs> uh, something like that. That'll yeah. work. Territorial. Well, you know they uh, here, and I got friends in Canada, so I, that are good people. But 
if they were that independent, then why is like 90% of their population within one hour of the U.S. border? They got a country, which I think is it's all, land-wise, isn't it bigger than the U.S.? Don't really I think know. so. Yeah, I think so. See, it'd be Looking good. at a map, it looks like it. It'd be good to take it over now because then you've got all that natural resources and the global warming takes hold. You know, uh, where we're at now will be the new Florida. Sounds like somebody's searching for the new uh, battle plans for the takeover. I was Whoa. checking to see if uh, we're bigger than them or they're bigger than us. <laughs> I mean, that was the question. Yeah, it is. I, I, I think land-wise, and that's going to be my, my prediction, is that land-wise there's more land. I, and, and probably, it says yes. It says yes. Yeah, Canada Superior is 9,97614, basically 9 million square mile, kilometers, and we're approximately 6 million square kilometers. Now, does that include Alaska? Uh, I did not say specifically. Yeah, because I think if you put a... If Alaska wasn't in there, then that would make it closer. I still think they're bigger. Yeah. Oh, they're still nice people. Yeah. And that's why they're they, nice neighbors. Yeah. They, they, they've been good for us. They give us a buffer. You know, Russia's got to go over the top of uh, Canada before they get here. Uh, but they, they keep, that's why that, that shipwreck is so important that they're doing research on because they're going to use that to claim land. If there is under the ice any land that pops up, they're going to claim that, and that will extend out their mineral rights. And their international territory claims. And then we've got a solar eclipse. I don't know. Did you see that one island that they, they had that they're making such a big deal in France? Where the they have the causeway and this is the one time where the water has potential of completely making the, the it, it to be a true island? I have not heard. Yeah, and we had this, what we had the... Uh, eclipse the the lunar eclipse where everything lines up and you have the the super high and low tides and uh, yeah there was a bunch of photographers and everything and i'm thinking with all this global warming and this has happens like every 80 years wouldn't the water level come up to the point where this would happen like all the time how's it not being been flooded by now but anyway the solar eclipse has also has uh help for revealing ships that have been hidden off the uk shipwrecks off uh Formby Coast were exposed. The supertide caused uh, shipwrecks also off the Misery Coast to be visible. The remains of a refrigerated cargo ship, the Iconic Star, which was embedded in the sands off the uh, Formby since October 1939, could be seen as low tide at low tide on Monday. Vessel sank close to the end of its journey from Rio de Janeiro to Liverpool. High tides were also seen on the Liverpool waterfront, but the environmental agency said no flood warnings uh, were needed. These spring tides and higher tides do the month's eight, moon's 18-year cycle. High tides may lead to a spray on the promenade. So if you're walking on the promenade, you, you could get a little damp. I'm looking at the uh, towers, the wind towers in the back. Are they normally underwater? What, look in that photo gallery? Yeah. Well, behind it, that's the ship, right? I'm assuming that's the one. So I'm just curious how far away are those wind towers and does a high water, if it covers this boat or ship, does that interfere with the wind, you know, with the uh, wind blades there? I don't think so. I don't, I think they've got them high enough up. Plus, I think those wind towers are way in the distance. Those, those look similar to the ones that we see where you see them in the distance as you're driving on a highway and they don't look that big and they get up close yeah. to them and they're, it's like the, just the, the little box around the blade motor. Is like the size of a house. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And looking at the ship, I would like to know, is it never visible 
or it was more of it visible? Because you look, it shows kind of there's like a little line there. So I'm thinking that maybe the parts of the shipwreck were that normally don't get exposed were exposed. That's pretty ratty, though, isn't it? Doesn't look that big either now that you... Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a huge vessel. Yeah. And they knew it was there. It wasn't like it was, wasn't discovered, but creates a little bit of awareness, a little bit of visibility. Is this like the Bay of Fundy where they have 23-foot tides high and low? I, th- I think so. I think it's fairly high tide ranges to begin with. And those are going to be where you're going you're to see more effect when you have these uh, you know, 18-year cycles. But with the ice leaving Lake Michigan, we're also seeing something similar here. Uh, shipwreck pieces reappearing on along Sleeping Bear Dunes. This is out of Empire, Michigan. The wreck of the Genie and Annie was playing peekaboo park officials off at the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. So that part of the schooner which sank off Empire in 1872 is visible on the beach again. The wreck last serviced in 2012 and periodically makes appearances on the beach based on changing water levels, currents, winds, and waves. She's back again, they said. The 40-foot-long hull piece of the Jenny and Annie, believed to be the ship's bilge Kielsen, is one of the multiple shipwreck fragments that periodically wash ashore or unearthed by the elements during the National Lakeshore, along the National Lakeshore. Uh, the shipwreck was uh, surveyed in 1995 when the offshore Manitou Passage was being readied as an underwater preserve. The waters between the dunes and the Manitou Islands are dotted with 19th-century shipwrecks and submerged docks from former lakeshore communities. The ship suffered... Does it say, does it say what they're doing to prevent the uh, destruction of these uh, how they're pre- how artifacts? Are they preserving it? Yeah, I'm just curious. They're taking photos. I saw that one picture with a big, large green rope around it. Do you see that one? I mean, look. Uh, like, like somebody was trying to maybe take something. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I get to click on the forward and then it runs a damn ad. There's a couple interesting shots. Yeah. Uh, I don't a see a rope, that though. The ice flows on it. Oh, there's the green. Yeah, I see it. But let me see. Move it up to a bigger monitor. Yeah, I can't tell if somebody try, was trying to grab it or if the rope just happened to be snagged. It looks like a fairly fresh rope, though, doesn't it? Yeah, because some of the pictures look like uh, the fall and some look like the summer. I don't know where that voice was coming from. No, it sounded like an old-time radio. Yeah, so some of those photos are not from this year. Those are file photos that they, they handed out. Because I'm picturing there would have been a little bit more ice up there. Because we still have ice down here. Yeah. I guess if you had just the right wind on a particular day. But those had to have been uh, warmer weather photos. Well, if it was damaged severely in 1869, I would consider it severely damaged now. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's just parts. It floats. And my dad, I uh, did, I t- did I tell the story? Look, last time I was over there visiting, he was reminding me when we were at the chalets. He was walking along the beach one day, and he saw this. It was probably a thirty foot section of uh, of a, of a wooden ship out there. He thought that was neat, so he went the next. So he, he the next day he was going to take my mom and I out to take a look at it. And when we got out there, there was nothing. The, the waves had pulled it right back into the lake. Yep. And that, you know where those chalets are too. Those a frames just north of the plant. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's down in the same area as the railroad tracks and the dump cars out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine you got some pretty well waterlogged things that, that kind of. 
that's real close to the clay banks also. Yes. And we found other stuff there. I've got, uh, I don't have it here. I think my dad's got it. But we've got some little, you know, you can tell they're off a, a boat, but you have no idea what they are. One was actually a ring. Uh, the ring is about three foot in diameter, and it's uh, built up uh, like two bys four layers deep. So it almost looks like it could be a port of some kind. So I don't know if that would have been in the structure as a porthole, like you'd had a porthole and there'd have been a you know a brass porthole on it, and that was just a framing for it. But you were always finding stuff like that washing up on the beach. And then the steamship, the SS Ramona, is making a final run on Reed's Lake in 1956, if we were back there. So Reed's Lake, that's where the uh, Grand Valley State University was did the the uh, ROV through the ice, isn't it? That's correct, and that's a little south of Grand Rapids proper. Mm-hmm. For those who want to know where Reed's Lake was, that's, Grand that's, Rapids area. That's not too bad. That's not too bad a distance. Uh, uh, two Grand Valley State University professors discussed their efforts last month to document the remains of the SS Hazel A, which sunk in Reed's Lake in the mid-1920s. Others in attendance spoke about the history of steamships on the lake. With the help of colleagues from Northern Michigan College, a professor used the sonar to get more detailed images yet of the steamship. Also looked for the remains of the SS Ramona, which was followed, by, followed the Hazel but was scrapped, burned, and is said to be sunk off Collins Park. So it was burned, too? Yeah, I got a picture of it uh, after they took the boiler off and just before they slid it back out there to uh, its watery grave. So, so they took the boiler out, they pushed oh, yeah. it out, then they lit it on fire? Hey, you want to get rid of the top superstructure and then burns out to the water line and goes away and not a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I could see somebody doing that. Not anymore. Well, they did it. You saw the big picture of it, right? Well, I'm looking at the one here. Right. That looks like the same type that was on Pawpaw Lake, by the way. So really, this is just a double-decker with an observation. So when you would pull up to a dock, you've got center boarding on the side. Everybody would file off, get back on. And how many times a, a day would these make rounds on these lakes? Any idea? Like in Pawpaw? Most of them had a regular schedule. Because bef- bef- Yeah, it's pretty pretty common you know like once an hour or so i think they would run yeah because before cars were commonplace i mean your alternative was a horse not everybody had a horse so it'd be a long walk if you happen to be within walking distance of one of these docks it was certainly a lot easier to walk down to the dock get onto the boat and hit hit the town so like papa that would be uh Cloma, i take it i'm trying to think of which one yeah Cloma or water Valley. Yeah, because you're not really going to get right to town, but you're going to get close to it. So well, the railroad there in Pawpaw used to come downtown to Waterville or to uh, Coloma. Used to go around the point all the way up to L&E Bay, and that's where people could take the train. Then they could get off along the route or get off at L&E, catch the boat that would go around the rest of the lake and drop you off at the hotels of your choice. Because back then, all you had was the dirt road and buckboards. And the boat was a lot smoother and easier to travel. Oh, it was luxury compared to a buckboard. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they said that the prosperity the, ships, the steamships brought to uh, Reed Lake and East Grand Rapids was significant. Because of the steamboat business, a lot of little businesses were started around here. I think it was originally developed because of the steamboat. This is according to Sue Henry, 70 of Kentwood. It is what it is today because of the people were founding fathers of the little town. So I, I find it interesting. Anytime I got a chance to dive on something like that, it's pretty cool. 
Well, I believe the max depth of Reed Lake is about 54 feet. That wreck is in 45, excuse me, 45 feet. And the vis visibility, no matter what time of year, is uh, really sucky, which means it's good grubbing for the rest of us because nobody yeah. else likes it. Yeah, it takes the hardcore mud diver to get in there and enjoy it. Yeah, I'll be going up there this spring doing a little bit of work, and uh, you've got one public access, and you also have a kayak launch point. So you do have availability to get out there and start grubbing around. Now, Not around the boats. Now, what is the reason so for the visibility being so poor? I'm sorry, go ahead. What's the reason the visibility being so poor? I think a lot of it is because uh, the runoffs and the drainage is not as desired, and therefore you keep getting pollutants in every time you have heavy rains. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You have some lakes where everything flows into it, and that will contribute to it. We've got, you know, your parking lots. Everything is paved, so you oh, yeah. have nothing to absorb all the nutrients and all the other crap flows into one body of water, and that's your cesspool. Yeah, well, did you see my photos from the camping this last weekend? And I had the one where we're on the river. Mm -hmm. We stayed at Shamrock Park. And as you're on the river, I was thinking, gosh, this is a noisy river. The river's not noisy. Opposite the campground, about 20 feet above the water, is this cast iron pipe that comes out. And it's got to be nearly 100 years old. And it's the storm drain for the whole entire town. So any of your roads where water comes in, it just hits the storm drain system and comes out that pipe. So there is n no delay. I mean, previously that would have, you know, before you had cities or towns, that would have been swamp or land or something would have absorbed a lot of that water. Now yeah. we just run it right out to a body of water, such as a lake or a pond. On that article, do you see the one that says related stories on the frozen surface of Reed's Lake? No, I didn't. Oh, if you went to the bottom and you hit to the left and you clicked on that, that gives you some very nice pictures of uh, the boat and part of the area. Okay. And if you like, if you clicked on it, it's pretty neat. Some of the scenery, and it reminds you a heck of a lot of Pawpaw. And there's a good picture of the Ramona out with the boiler off, superstructure gone and burned. There's a good picture of what that looks like. Okay. So right. when you look at the side scan of it, and you wonder why all you see is the gunnels and the ribs in the bottom, that's because that's all there was when they sank her. Did you find the pictures I was talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm clicking on it now. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Flash wants an update, which I'm not going to give it, but okay. Oh, that, that with a boiler, that's a pretty decent boiler they had on there. Uh, yeah, that's why they took it off and the prop. You'll find that because that's your, one of the few color ones they have there, and it's right there at the dock as it's burning, matter of fact. Ah, uh, okay. Did you get there yet? Yeah, at the one where it's burning? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's hardly anything left of it. Well, that my point, I suppose, is I love arc, you know, the archaeological aspect and discovery, but all you do is go back and look at the history. You've already got the photos, and if they didn't get a grant to spend the money to go look at it, it wouldn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah that's, that's – and literally, other than the bow – Everything is to the the hull. There's nothing left. There's, there, I mean, even before they sank it. Yeah. And the front part burned too, but. Uh, oh, this is just it was later when it burned. Yeah, it's still burning as you as that picture was taken. Yeah, it was burned in 1956. Yeah. yeah. Well, they got uh, to play. They got to play with some toys. Yeah. As I look at some of these other photos, I like old boat photos anyway. Wow, there's that other one of the. Uh, was it Nazella? Or is that Hazel? Oh, it's just Hazel A. So they did the same thing with that one too then, did they? Yes. That one looks like it sank right at the dock before they burned it. 
Must have been a bad winter. And you could hear everybody complaining. What an eyesore that is when they got to take care of it. Because it probably was sitting at dock for a couple of years of not being used. And somebody wanted the space, blocked their view. And then I, uh, this next article talks about the museum in South Haven is, is going to have a diver speak and give a lecture. What Lies Beneath. Presentation will be a third of the museum's 2015 lecture series. Do we know this guy? I, I think I've heard of him before. At least I know he's a qualified diver, and he's been doing this a while. So his credibility is there. He's been there, done that. I, sure. I wouldn't trust a single word he says. Yeah, well, they say he's been a diver for over 30 years, gained his initial certification on shipwreck in the North Atlantic Ocean off the coast of New Jersey. Then he moved to Michigan, started diving the Great Lakes, where shipwrecks are more abundant, better preserved, the only place in the world where you could find intact wooden lake schooners. Hey, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. It does. So let's say it's, um, say I slaughter the name, Jim Schultz. So that's going to be what? that's going to be up. Where'd at, you find that? This uh, it was in my normal search. The Holland Sentinel. Holland Sentinel. Wow. Holland Sentinel posted it on the twenty fourth, which that was two days ago. That had been Tuesday. So Tuesday they. Posted an article that says that you will be presenting at what lies the presentation of what lies beneath a lecture at the shipwreck diving experience of discoveries of the Great Lakes at two p.m. on March twenty eighth. Two p.m. Yeah, I got to be there. Now you know what time got to be there. Presentation to two o'clock. Now I know what time I have to be there. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't know until <laughs> and they told you you were doing it. <laughs> they they they, they, well, they have a hat and they like pull a name out and they go ah it's. Today's June. Well, I, it, you know, I, I knew I had to do it on Saturday. I thought I had 2 o'clock written down, but I didn't know if that's for, for sure or not. So if that's what they've got in the paper, that must be right because the well, papers it, never make mistakes. Yeah, everything's true in the paper. So, yeah, yeah. I, well, okay. Well, so, since you brought it up, yes, I will be speaking at the Maritime Museum at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. I, I, I think I complain about the admission fee. They say admissions, $8 for adults, 17 for seniors. Or seven seventeen. There you go. Seven dollars. Pay to get in. <laughs> seven dollars for seniors. I was going to say that was like a bargain. It should be at least two to three times that for that presentation. Well, well you know, m- museum members get in for free. And what's a museum membership? And cost? actually, eight dollars is probably what it costs for a one day admission to the museum. So you get to hang around and hear me speak. Yeah. So you can visit the and museums. Eight. Go ahead. Great opportunity for a one hour nap. Yeah. You can visit the museum's website, michiganmaritimemuseum.org, and they have their 800 number, which is 1-800-747-3810. They didn't even give you your credentials as the preserve president. Oh, they did. Okay, yeah, I see that. Yeah, cool. Good deal. Yeah, you're you're really stretching for news this week, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. Scraping the bottom of the barrel. Well, I I saw that, and I'm like, well, at first I thought it was going to be the MSRA show, but no, this is the... The preserve. So we're getting to that time of the year. So is the museum open now every day? Uh, weekends, I believe. I think they weekends. start every day in April. Yeah. It is getting to be that time of year and none too late or too soon, whatever the saying goes. Five scuba diving safety tips for boaters. Don't get in the water. Don't get in the water? That's the first one I saw. It says tip, therefore, always tip number one is always for a scuba dive from a boat with an experienced diver at the helm, whether you own the boat or belongs to the operator. 
So that says don't get in the water? No, I read this back in that one. Oh. But <laughs> okay. if you don't get in the water, you're definitely safer. Oh, that is a safe. That is a good safety tip. You don't use any well, air. You, know, you don't. <laughs> that's really a good tip. If you're not a diver and you're operating the boat, you don't really know what they're going through or going after. And, you know, a, a, a diver would make a, I won't say a diver would make a better captain, but a diver would make a more familiar captain for a dive boat. So tip number two, the dive or diver's down flag uh, is essential safety tool to have aboard the boat whenever you go scuba diving. And this this uh, publication must be out of Florida because they're reciting the Florida rule, which is the distance of is 300 feet is what other boats are supposed to keep their distance from. And the exception is if you're in a navigation channel such as an inlet, it goes down to 100 feet. They're saying we see an awful lot of divers go out without dive flags. In other cases, passing boats don't understand or recognize they have to keep their distance or they're an autopilot not looking out. And then tip three is to stay visible to boaters. The recommendation is that the divers bring a safety sausage along with them every time they dive. It's an inflatable orange wand about four to five feet length. Upon surfacing, divers can hold it up so other boaters won't hit them and their own boater can locate them more readily. And that's good to have on even if you don't fly it to have it available and you want one tall enough to be seen over the waves so that five or six feet they say four or five feet but i would say even longer than that yeah you want to get one at least like the dan group cells and then tip four is stay on top of the weather we had divers go into the water when there's a big front coming down the coast when it when the front hits the divers are 10 minutes into the dive and they don't realize there's a driving rain on the surface the boat operator panics because he can't see the divers and calls the sea tow and we've got i guess i don't necessarily understand this is is this a, a warm clear water problem is this where the, the captains are used to being able to look over the side of the boat and see his divers at all times Sounds like a Florida diving situation. Yeah, because here, you, you, as a captain of the boat, how how long can you see the divers? <laughs> I, I think once we touch the anchor line, that's probably the last time you see us. Yeah, we we follow the bubbles. Yeah, well, the yeah, bubbles can be handy. I guess if it rained hard enough, you wouldn't see the bubbles. Or if you got Bob on board. That's why I like no, to carry no a flag. Bubble Bob. No bubble Bob. We need no to give, bubble Bob. We, we need to make a flatulence device for him that he could take with him. That would burp out a bubble every so often so we could at least track well, him. He does when he's coming to the surface. Yeah, he'll have to purge his uh, diluent that's in his counter lungs. Right. But staying on top of the weather is good, even if it's not for the same reasons they have. Because a lot of times you're out of distance and you don't want to be caught out there when it's terrible. You know, we've seen it go from glass to four to five footers in no time at all. And tip number five is uh, if you're out in a boat, learn about the local currents. When divers in the water doing a drift dive, sometimes a boat operator will lose them because they understand the current. An inexperienced operator will maintain a position by a buoy, and the divers will resurface in a completely different spot. If he puts the boat in the neutral, on the other hand, the boat will drift with the current in the same direction as the divers and will come close to them when they come back up. If you're doing a current dive. If you're doing a wreck and you go down the buoy, you're coming up the buoy. Well, we lost our internet. Well, that's no good. Yeah, right in the middle of Miss February. Well, we're back recording, so let's see. I lost, I lost track. Well, we just finished with that one, so we're down almost to the helium suit one. Yeah, so we had the five scuba diving safety tips for boaters. And then now we go into some cool scuba gear. The U.S. Navy is showing off. And, and I like how they say showing off, but then they didn't give any details or actually show anything. 
but uh, they're saying that they they were they're showing some uh, prototype of a helium saving deep dive suit, and the article goes into some good details of explaining some of the stuff that we won't explain to our listeners because they're most likely familiar with some of these conditions. But what the Navy's running into is that they're going through a heck of a lot of helium. And then also they're usually using surface supplied air for that helium. So they're dealing with all the cables and tanks and the support vessel that goes along with it. So this uh, deep diving suit is a looks appears to be a, a type of rebreather, but it's especially supposed to be good at recycling the hydrogen. I said hydrogen, helium. Hey, you could recycle some hydrogen. Uh, so they, they talk about extreme depths that nitrogen, nitrogen can cause nitrogen narcosis, too much oxygen, you get oxygen toxicity. And so you use, uh, helium, but they almost make it sound like they're going to, they're going with a different mix. Can, can, can you figure that out, Mac? I actually know they're using helium mix. Cause they talked about helium taking the temperature away. Oh yeah. You start breathing helium. Uh, that's one of the first things we learned at school and you breathe it. One, you have the Donald Duck. Yeah. Uh, so they're getting some better electronics that can actually unscramble it, but now you're talking a lot of money. Right. And then the big one is the heat loss. If you're diving deep, if you don't have a hot water suit, you're going to freeze. You're going to go into um, hypothermia. Hypothermia pretty quick. Uh, yeah, so the, the Navy is currently using flyaway mixed gas systems, FMGS, which pumps breathing gas from the surface support ship as an umbilical to the diver's helmet, and the di- but the diver's escalations are vented straight back to the sea. So there's absolutely no recycling, no reusing of any of the gas. Well, that's the way it normally is, yeah. Yeah. Well, what they're talking about is they're spending a lot in helium, and I bet you they got to be concerned that helium, because we had, was it, tight conditions a couple years ago, uh, and it's starting to become rare and expensive. Plus, they, they've got another motive is that they're trying to get divers down to 600 feet. The new system modifies the current helmet and rebreather. Prototype analysis and testing have shown that drastic reduction in helium consumption is possible. This according to Principal Investigator John uh, Camperman. Testing the new prototype system indicates a full range of FMGS diving is supported with the Navy's life support requirements and that several life support characteristics are improved, including extending emergency come-home gas duration. So what you're basically doing is recycling some of the gas up to a certain point, then you can abort, you know, overboard. Mm-hmm. You're still you're still off gassing, but you are being able to recycle that several times. So is this a, is, would this be like a surface supplied rebreather? So you're still using surface supplied air. It's just it's a rebreather system. So you're you know instead of your dilute like how we would have it, you'd have your tank, your dilute, and your oxygen on you as part of a rebreather. This is taking those gases from the surface. So in the That's event, what it sounds like to me, yeah, it, which that would give you a little bit of safety if you because you could have a, a tiny bailout tank of the two gases on you, and if you cut the umbilical cord, then you you've got a little bit longer time to get to the surface. I, I'm not quite sure about the small tank though. <laughs> if you're at 600 feet, oh yeah, if it's 600 feet, you're, you're going to be using a little bit more. You would have a you, you want to have a you want to have enough gas in your bailout that you'd be able to come up without with none. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if that hose got cut, you you don't want to be sucked out through the hose. Be and interesting then, to see what that costs. I bet it's going to be pretty pricey. I mean, just looking at the the photo of it, that that does not look like cheap gear. 
And imagine, I mean, you you think about the $100,000 toilet seats. Imagine what that would cost. Kind of does look like a toilet seat when you look at it the right there's, way. There's jet fighter toilet seats. Yep. Yeah. So let's you see. Know, there, the, there's, yeah, well, you got to understand. There are screws. There are marine screws. And there are military-grade marine screws. And you just multiply by 10 each time you go between. That's right. Ten-cent screw will cost you a dollar if it's a marine screw and cost you $10 if it's a military marine screw. And if you're working in a nuclear plant, it's 100 bucks. Ooh, it's 100 bucks. <laughs> that's right. And if it goes on a nuclear sub, it's 1000 Well, it's going to cost a little more than I've got. Mm. So are we up to the diving yet? I think we are. Well, I didn't get any in. <laughs> I, I did. But I want to hear about Mac. I know Mac got some diving in. So, Mac, you got well, some diving in. Bob, Bob and the guys went out on the piers, man. I saw that. Action. On Sunday, they, they did a post and said that they're going out to the pier. And by that time, I, what, what I did this last weekend is I went camping. And it was, the, I, to tell you the good things, no mosquitoes, no flies. The bad thing is it was like 19 degrees. <laughs> you must have the big blue tent that had the cots and the heater in it. Well, I didn't have a heater in it, but, yeah, I had a cot. I, yeah, you're right. The Of the tents, the Scoutmaster tent, which I did happen to buy, uh, is the big, large tent. And there's we had three Scoutmasters in that tent. And then the boys, they had the uh, – there was five boys, and they were in their, their tents. And it was cold, but it wasn't as cold. We've – this was a, a cold season. Uh, we've done Klondikes where you got snow, and uh, you know we did those. We've done them down to single digits, and that is pretty rough. It was cold. I didn't, and I spent all Sunday trying to warm up. You could have not gotten me in the river, no matter what. I was too cold. But uh, Bob and Kevin were they the only two who went? Yeah, Ted was there, but he was on the opposite side. And by the time he figured out where everybody else was, it's too late to get back in. Yeah. Now, did uh, Kirk go with him? Not as far as I know. How, how was Viz? Was it about six inches? I heard it was five feet. What did you hear, Jim? Uh, it was five on the surface, but when they got in and got the depth, it got pretty bad. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. No, I take that back. It was five on the bottom. Oh, five on the bottom. So it was worse five on the Five on the bottom. That was their Viz on the bottom. They had more Viz on the surface. That's pretty good then. I, I'm, I'd be pleased with that. And that was a shore dive on the north, correct? I don't know which one they did it on. So they, they need to get the, the Zodiac out. Or does uh, Bob not have it? Well, he's working nights and stuff, so I think he's limited oh, on his Oh, so he, he was – yeah, I was wondering because I, I saw him post, and I was thinking he was still in an outage for the for – the, Well, the actual outage just started, yeah. but he was in pre-outage and they have post-outage. The okay. actual outage is right now. Yeah, so for our listeners, what the outage is, is well, nuclear plants have to go through a re- refueling cycle. And, uh, you know, when the nuclear plant's down, it's not making money. It's not producing electricity, uh, and that's kind of all hands on deck. So Bob, who's a technical IT-type person at the nuclear plant, becomes an operational person for project planning, and uh, I think they call it critical path is what he works on. And uh, so you're busy. He has no time. So that's you, you, I like it when it's early in the year like this because it means that the outage will be over with and he can go diving in the summer. Uh, but that was good. That was uh, what, what I'm assuming water temperatures were low 30s. Probably around thirty-eight. Yeah. Yeah. You, you still there's. A, I saw a picture in the the paper on the weekend, and they had, or is that in the Facebook, where they had the kayak next to the icebergs, and the those are about fifteen twenty feet tall. Yeah, those were. I think Mark Perrin went out on on a 
kayaks. Okay. He's got he gets some good pictures. He's out all over. Does he do anything other than take photos all the time? Yeah, he's a EMT master specialist. He teaches at um, I think two of the hospitals. He's part of the cardiac care stuff. Okay, and then he works for Harold Palladium as a photographer. And uh, he actually used to be a member of the dive club. Yeah. And when he got heavy into photography, he was doing video, and that weaned him away from diving. And he's now more, well, not more, now he's a damn good photographer. Yeah, I, he's doing tons of photography. That's all I see of him posting. And he gets picked up quite a bit, so a lot of his photos are used all over. Yeah. Now, and the where we were camping, we were right on the river. And it didn't look too terrible. It wasn't chocolate. I, I would say you could see vertically maybe a foot or two. Seemed towards the edges, you had better vis than out in the middle. Sounds right. Yeah, it was it was moving at a pretty good clip though. A lot of fishermen out in boats. There didn't seem to be a lot of catching, but there's a lot of fishing. Now, did you did you get anything in, Bob? Uh, Bob uh, Mac? Yeah, we got about eight or nine dives in. <laughs> eight or nine dives in. Where did you go? In the river? Pawpaw, yeah, Pawpaw River upstream okay. of uh, down there by the that winds around the Harbor Shores Golf Course. Okay, back there. Wow. So that's I've there's times I've watched that river and it'll be so muddy that you can't see anything that's one of the few places that we dove year before last that we went in at the brand new pure part and i could not could not make any headway against the current now how was it this year uh this year i worked in a we were doing a job okay and uh we were out of the major flow which is the only reason we could do it but the viz in that area was not but the last day meaning the day we had the snow when we were coming back after we finished, it's like, damn, we had two-foot visibility. <laughs> and we almost went up to dive the bridge, but by that time we were froze, and it's like, enough's enough. We got out. So anything non-work-related that you saw that was interesting? Uh, we did find some kind of animal life. We don't know what it is. It, it looked like a cross between a crawfish and an earwig and a tadpole. I have no idea what it is. It had a very ungainly hump push with the back fin. And we just, it would have been smart to get get a sample, but we had other items and we had to take care of. Huh? No idea what it was. And you're talking thousands of them. Oh, there were thousands of them? Oh, yeah. Thousands. Oh, that'd be good to get a sample because then you could report it and figure it out. I mean, is it an invasive species? If you haven't seen it. That's an indication it's not something normal. Or it's just in a stage of life that we never that we don't typically see. Right. And that's what I was wondering. I thought initially it was tadpoles. We looked at that's not tadpoles. And it was very unusual and uh next time I get that way just for fun I'll take a small net and maybe try to get a sample because I am curious to see what it was. Yeah, I'd I'd be interested to see what that was as well. Well that's good. Now how cold was it? Was it too bad? If you did not those um, new gloves we got from Wolf's. Yes. I fill mine full of water, put them on. Those things are gorgeous. Keep my hands warm. Oh. And uh, the smartest thing I ever did was cut off those feet and put those boots on my suit. Yeah. My hands and feet were absolutely gorgeous the whole time. I mean, nice and toasty. Yeah, I, I need to get some gloves. That's the my, my, I, my next item I need to buy. I'm in a holding pattern uh, on buying any new dive gear until we get my a car for my daughter. Now, we, we were both good, but once we got to a certain point, you got chilled and your your core was co- was cold. It was time to get out, and we got out, and it you know hot soup time. Yeah, and let's let's dress and get the hell out of there. 
Yeah. I which don't uh, you, gloves? Do you, which gloves do you have, Mac? The ones I got from you guys. You know that. So it's supposed to be dry gloves, but the waterproofs. Yeah. So I just fill them with water, and they work fantastic. Uh, and that's why I got that new hood from you the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Because the one I've got is nice, but it's too freaking tight on my on my head, and it jams my neck every time I use it. So I've got after effects from that. Is my my neck is sore as a mother. So that's why I went and got that new hood because I can't take that anymore. Now, have, have I talked to you guys about the exchange student from Thailand that some friends of mine are hosting? No, I've not heard about them. Yeah, well, she, she's she's a senior this year in the, in the school system. She's uh, from Thailand, and she's scuba certified. So what I'd like to do while she's here is get her out in Lake Michigan and have her dive a shipwreck. Oh, yeah. Because that has to be something that she – is got the diving here has got to be so radically different from there. Mm-hmm. I tried to convince her that she should come on an ice dive, and she looked at us like we were completely insane, which we are. But dry suit makes the difference. Yeah, this year I've been in the water more in cold water that without a dry suit, there's no way in hell I could have done it. No, no. Now that I've dove a dry suit, I mean you can technically do it, but it, it's kind of like the difference between doing one of those uh, New Year's Day. Uh, what, skivvy dives or you just jump in with nothing on and get in the water and pop out and say you did it? Or do you actually spend some time in the water doing something and enjoying it? Well, those 20 minutes I can do ice dive for 20 minutes in the wet. But if you're working, ain't going to happen, buddy. You need to be dry or you're not going to be working. Yeah. Yeah, your, your, your dexterity or your concentration is all very difficult in a cold, wet suit in the ice. And it's really great having the toy box with a heater. That oh, mechanic. yeah. Yep. Yeah, certainly. Something's beeping at me. I don't know what it is. So, yeah, we, what I need to do uh, probably is get her up to the dive shop and see if we can equip her out, get some, some stuff she can fit into. Unless it's low battery on the headset. Must be. It's coming through the headset. Yeah, we're not hearing it. Oh, sorry. I thought it was still muted. Nope. Uh, okay. Well, if you'd love to leave us a five-star review, that would be awesome. You can do that on iTunes. We're also on Talk Shoes, show 73759. You can listen to us on WRVO Radio. WRVO Radio has some a nice selection of outdoor programming, hunting, fishing, scuba diving. So if you're into any of those activities, take a look at the selections. They are broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round. You can get some programming. Also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. And our website, which is drastically out of date, www.scubobsessed.com. Follow us on Twitter at scubobsessed. You guys got anything you want to plug before we get going? Well, anybody who's local, go up there and see the presentation by the master. Yeah. Maritime Museum. You got time. (laughs) So is it going to be recorded? Are we going to have any evidence of this presentation? Oh, no. (laughs) I don't want to do that. It'll self-destruct after the end of the show. Yeah. As a side note, I will be doing a presentation up at the uh, Power Squadron 6 up in Muskegon on the 1st, which is April Fool's Day. Hopefully that's not intended to be a a joke up there, but uh, we'll be doing a presentation up there. How did the, uh, the booth go at the sports show? I understand it went very well. Uh, it was changed a little bit. Mary Beth did a nice job. We had metal detectors there, DPVs, had a hookah rig on display. Uh, we had the rescue, the um, 
rapid diver mannequin. Okay. So had, people had a lot of things to look at, and we had a, a little different setup. And uh, had quite a few people come over and ask about scuba classes, about the club. And uh, that's one thing I didn't send you yet, Jim, was a five addresses. Okay. So it sounded like it was a success. I think uh, the food was absolutely gorgeous or fantastic and plentiful. I'm sorry I missed that part. Yeah. And I missed Wolf's Open House. First time in, I cannot remember when. Yeah, I was. I wanted to get there, but with the camping and everything going on, oh gosh! Did I did I, did I tell you guys? I my daughter and her boyfriend wanted to do. They they play these trading card games. I think it's called Magic the Gathering. And the game started at midnight and went till five a.m. Wow! So yeah, so I was at the car waiting for them while they did that. More as a favor to my wife than to the kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. I think that about does it. We'll go ahead and finish up. We've got some nice jokes. Rod's been sending me a few that we've got in the aging barrels at the moment. This one wasn't from Rod. I don't know who it came from. Are you guys ready? Ever ready. Oh, yeah. An old diver had a teenage son and was getting time where the boy should give some thought to choosing a profession. Like many young men his age, the boy really didn't know what he wanted to do. He didn't seem to be too concerned about it. One day while the boy was away at school, his father decided to try an experiment. He went in the boy's room and placed on his study table four objects. First was a Bible. The second was a silver dollar. Third was a bottle of whiskey. And fourth was a Playboy magazine. I'll just hide behind the door, the old diver said to himself. When he comes home from school a day, I'll see which object he picks up. If it's a Bible, he's going to be like me, and what a blessing that would be. If he picks up the dollar, he's going to be a businessman, and that would be okay, too. But if he picks up the bottle, he's going to be a no-good drunken bum, and Lord, what a shame that would be. And worst of all, if he picks up that magazine, he's going to be a skirt-chasing womanizer. The old man waited anxiously and soon heard his son's footsteps as he entered the house, whistling and heading for his room. The boy tossed his books in the bed and turned to leave the room. He spotted the objects on the table. With curiosity in his eye, he walked over to inspect him. Finally, he picked up the Bible, placed it under his arm. He picked up the silver dollar and dropped it in his pocket. He uncorked the bottle, took a big drink while he admired this month's centerfold. Lord have mercy, the old diver disgustingly whispered. He's going to run for Congress. Well, sounds like a lot of truth in that one. <laughs> yeah. I can see that play, those, you know, the common element to all those. I won't say Clinton. <laughs> oh, we forgot about the El Camino. So on that note, until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And come out to the museum and hear me speak, because I have a face for radio. Recording has been completed.